morning. Um, our scripture reading is listed wrong in the bulletin, but it's taken from many places in scripture today. Um, but the final one will be 2 Corinthians 8, not 2 Corinthians 9. So please read with me. Um, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Acts 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Proverbs 3, 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Leviticus 27, 30. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Proverbs eleven twenty four, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Malachi three ten, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And then finally, it's 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you to a year ago, and started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Good morning and welcome again to Holy Trinity. Just a couple things as we get started here. The first is, pause Jonathan for me. Jonathan Gilly, just pause. I just want to honor Jonathan and thank God for his 11 years of ministry. We'll do a little bit more uh, in the days to come, yes. Jonathan is a friend and has been faithful over these years. And just want to say thank you to you, Jonathan, for your integrity, your love for the Lord, the way you've led us in worship. We're grateful for you and love you. And Loran and Jasper and Jaden. So I just needed to say that as Jonathan was on his way uh, to the back there. Secondly, um, thanks, Jonathan. You can stay there, too, if you want to. Um, I just want to say something about space. We have seven more Sundays in this space. No more than seven more Sundays, perhaps less. Um, I like adventures. I like risk a little bit. So who know, we don't know where we're going to be eight weeks from today. We have a possibility. We need a plan B if plan A is not about to go through. But um, the zoning board meets 12 days from today. So there is a space at 218 South Wabash, which is about double this space, a little less than double. It's about 12,000 square feet that instead of just renting one day a week, we could have 24-7 for about the same price. Um, and it feels like God may have opened that door, but I don't want to be presumptuous. I want to say if God so wills. But you could pray for this zoning board meeting that is coming up on February 18th, and it's kind of the last step for us to be able to secure this property. We have signed a letter of intent with the landlord. He's begun... Um, renovations and is making a lot of progress, but we do need to take uh, that step. We're going to talk about money today, so that's going to be really fun. Um, John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money does it take to make a man or a woman happy? Maybe you've heard this before. And his answer is just one more dollar, right? Just one more dollar. Uh, very wealthy man. But Jesus says no one can serve two masters. You'll either love one and despise the other or be devoted to the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus also says, don't be anxious about your life. In a world where we're running crazy sometimes, it seems like. Don't be anxious about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body or what you put on. Isn't your life more than food? The body more than, more than clothing. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet God feeds them, and they're more valuable than you. Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the, for the Gentiles, that is the nation, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In the text that we just read, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor for your sake, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 
We don't talk about money very much in this church and in this congregation, but today we're going to at the admonition of some of my brothers and sisters and friends. And what I want to do this morning is I'll tell you kind of where we're going. I'm going to give an overview of the argument that we've been making over the last few weeks. We've been in a series called Warming Our Hands and Our Hearts, and we're thinking about asking God to mold our hearts with his love and move our hands towards his work. So part of what we've been trying to do is clarify some of the priorities that we have as a church. If you are here the first time today, part of the reason why we're doing what we're doing is to help everybody who's newish to understand the culture and the commitments of Holy Trinity. One way to think of that is, of this church that, that you're in today, one way to think of that is that our culture is rapidly changing around us. What I used the analogy a few weeks ago of it's like uh, being near the ocean and one of those riptide um, forces kind of takes people and throws, doesn't throw them, but drags them so that they're in a completely different place. Our culture has been changing rapidly, our community is changing rapidly, our city is changing rapidly, and in order for our commitments to remain the same in the midst of all the change, we also have to change, which sounds strange. We have to change some of the ways that we're structured, some of the ways that we emphasize things. Not because we need to adapt to the culture, but because we have to respond to the changing culture around us. In order to keep our values the same moving forward, we have to make some adaptations in order to continue those things in the ways that we need to. Um, so our elders have been under, under process with our congregation over the last couple of years, and you can put the next slide up, to think about what our priorities are for the next few years, and we talk about it as a vision for transformation because we want to be changed by who Jesus is. We want to see our city changed by Jesus as well. Part of what we've been asking is how should we position Holy Trinity downtown in order to make the most impact that we can for the future? That is, what priorities should we have in making practicing disciples as we move into the future. And part of what I'm going to argue today, and I've, I've been trying to argue over the last five weeks, is that we are going to need a, a spiritual and relational and financial foundation in order to be stable as we move into the changing context that is around us in order to position Holy Trinity for the future. You can turn to the next slide. And uh, this slide is, is just saying it's it's a little messed up. I can see somebody, when we transferred it to this format, must not have uh, changed over very well. But basically what it says is that Chicago's at the center of a massive change in our, it's one of the cities at the center of what you might call a multicultural and generational change. And it's, we're seeing that through the transience of people who are in the city and then gone. We're seeing that in the increasing polarized political environment. Post George Floyd's death, there was a response from almost the, the kind of global community in lament over that tragedy, and then there's been a polarization racially following that as well, as well as being in an increasingly secularized and post-Christian society. Again, I'm calling these some cultural riptides. David Brooks, you might have seen the article that he wrote this last week that 
picked up on some of these cultural riptides. He put it this way. He said, imagine that you have, he was talking about the change in North American Christianity. And here's how he expressed it. He said, pretend like you have 12 friends. I know some of you have 13 friends, but pretend like you have 12. I know some of you have two friends, but imagine that you have 12 friends and that over a period of time, six of the friends that are part of your friendship circle suddenly feel as if the things that you hold are utterly vile to them. (laughs) And then you discover that those other six suddenly view your beliefs as utterly vile towards them. And he, he says, these are the people that used to go on vacation with, the people used to go out to dinner with, and suddenly it seems as if there's this chasm between you. What he says is, this is what's happened over the past six years to millions of American Christians. The, the, the things that I was describing, he's making personal. Tabidi Anwabilia, who pastors uh, Anacostia Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., African-American pastoral leader, leader, says it this way, that his entire relationship landscape has been rearranged. White brothers and sisters that he thought he was close to no longer talk to him anymore. He says, at times it's been agonizing and bewildering. In other words, the question is, how do you make disciples? How do you build a faithful community that's being ripped apart by politics and race and issues of injustice? Go to the next slide. What we're saying is that we need to answer questions like, what does it really look like to make disciples in a culture like this culture? What does it look like to love our neighbors when they suddenly treat us as if our opinions are vile? How do we become better at the daily practice of our faith? And how do we affect change in our city as we want to see the city of Chicago transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Next slide. What we're saying is that we have to have a laser focus on just a few things, on being a vibrant, worshiping community that loves and exalts Jesus. It makes practicing disciples in the midst of all this cultural turmoil. Put it differently, is it possible to be a church that bridges some of those tensions, that bridges those challenges in our culture today? That's Lorena. Shout out to Lorena. Kind of wave Lorena. She's right over there. You can meet her later if you'd like to after the service. Next slide. Another way of saying it is, is how do we make practicing disciples in a post-COVID, in a post-Christian, in a post-George Floyd world? Next slide. So we've articulated three uh, priorities, just fortifying our center city congregation, investing in our neighborhoods, training practicing disciples, and we believe, next slide, that God is at work. Next slide. But we need this foundation that I'm talking about, which is a spiritual, relational, and financial foundation. So that's why we're talking about money is that financial is a part of this vision. And the main claim that I want to make this morning is is really that we need to be aligned around a vision together, take ownership of a vision together, but also contribute financially to this vision together. Every penny that comes to Holy Trinity Church downtown, we want to steward 
as if we are in the presence of the Holy God himself, that this is his money. And invest it so that it can be reproduced 10, 20, 30, and 100 fold. Next, don't no, actually stay there. I want the green slide. One, go back, sorry. You may not be able to read that, but this, this says uh, that there's kind of three goals as we've been putting this series together. One is we want some alignment. Picture geese flying together in a formation, okay? We want alignment so that we're all moving in the same direction. Shared vision is much more powerful than individual vision that is not executed together. Uh, in the military, they sometimes call it economy of force. You only have so much that you can do with your army, and so you have to say, where are we going? In football, it's like you have to find the hole and go through it. Or in soccer, we used to say, uh, find the hole and explode. It's this idea of alignment and, and economy of force moving through somewhere. The second one says tithing, and this is going to be the main thing I'm going to talk about today. And I'll put it this way. I want to help change your paradigm a little bit today or begin changing your paradigm around finances. So what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to describe a paradigm change, and then I'm going to defend the paradigm change. So this is, I was going to do an overview. I'm going to describe something, and then I'm going to def defend that. Um, but we also want ownership with you. Next slide just says that God has is unlimited in his ability to provide. This is from the end of uh, Ephesians chapter 3. It says that he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. So that's a little just kind of review of the, the argument that we've been making is that we need some very clear priorities in order to see our city transformed by the power of the gospel. And one of those priorities is really to strengthen ourselves financially, spiritually, and relationally. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about money and describe a change that we need to make. And I want us to think about, I want you to think about making a change. And I know this is the first week for some of you all, or the third week for some of you. I want you to think about making a change from a need orientation of giving to a devotion orientation of giving. From a scarcity mentality of giving to an abundance mentality of giving. Or another way to say it, from a crisis orientation of giving to a maturity orientation of giving. In other words, thinking about giving not as being something, oh, that the church needs, i got to do this for those people out there, but something that Christ has called you to do as a mature follower of Jesus Christ to declare that you will not be mastered by money, that you only have one Lord that you serve. And Jesus is so clear so many times in the scriptures that you can have the, the worries of this world choke out the fruit of your life. And if there's any place that that's most dangerous, it, it's definitely at the center of a city where we're all pursuing our dreams. So I want to challenge you to... to, to change your thinking about giving from this need-based approach to a devotion-based approach, for, from a crisis-based approach to a Christ-centered approach, as, like a, as, as a step of worship towards him, from emergency to maturity. And uh, this week, it came across this quote from a man whose name is C. Jack Miller, 
and uh, he was pastor in the, on the East Coast in um, Philadelphia area. And he went through a crisis in his life, and he realized that God had become like this footnote to his life. And he went away for a sabbatical to Spain, and he came back from Spain, and he basically said, like, I just want to give everything I have to Jesus. He started asking people really radical questions, He'd sit down with them and say, what sins are you confessing in your life today? And then he wanted them to tell him. <laughs> And the second question was, are you trusting Jesus and his finished work in your life? But he went through this kind of revival, and there was a moment that he, uh, their church was doing things like ministry. He'd, he'd go out and hang out with the motorcycle gang and evangelize these guys and tell them about Jesus. One of them became his son-in-law, came to know Christ. So there's a biography called Cheer Up about C. Jack Miller, and in it there's a moment where um, he embodied this kind of change that I'm talking about. He says that their church recognized the need. I'm just describing the change that I want, okay? He said their church, which was called New Life Community, recognized the need that it had for leadership training if it was going to take advantage of the exciting growth opportunities that God was placing before it. This meant it needed to mobilize significant resources and administrative support, even as it was launching new ministries. Yet for Jack, the budget committee that was handling such consideration was more than just a finance team trying to allocate, allocate limited resources among an increasingly unlimited number of gospel opportunities. He wanted the committee to be able to help the leaders in the congregation to gain a vision for, here, I want you to hear this phrase, the grace of giving in an orderly manner. So part of the reason why we're giving this book away to you guys in the next three weeks or so to read is, it's about the grace of giving in an orderly manner. Instead of, oh, there's a need, they just, we got to meet the budget at the end of the year. It's like, no, what is God calling you to do as a Christian disciple in your life? He said, it seems to me that one of the weaknesses in our giving has been a failure to emphasize giving as an act of total devotion to the Lord in worship. He says, the, the offering time traditionally in our worship service has been one of the most casual and unfocused parts of our time together. Personally, he says, I want to catch the excitement of bringing my gift. This is before electronic giving, but uh, he wanted to catch the excitement of bringing my gift to Jesus without any thought of anyone else as the recipient. I want to be Christ-oriented in my giving before I'm cause-oriented, even when the cause is the most urgent. Such giving required faith. So he wrote a letter to the to the, uh, this, this committee, and he said he proposed a quote-unquote faith partnership with God. And he starts to describe God, and he says his very nature is that of an abundant part provider for those in fellowship with him. If he is the senior and sovereign provider who owns and supplies all my property, then I can give confidently in worship. Further, I have the right to ask him to increase my income and bless my frugality so that I may have more to give to him and his kingdom work. Part of what I want to flip for us is, and, and some of you do this already, but saying, 
God, instead of me giving to you out of what's left over, I want to give to you first. We'll come to that in a second, but it's called first fruits giving. Nope, you already gave everything to, the, to me, God, so I want to give first to you, and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do with everything else, which takes some budgeting. And Daniel Westergaard is here to help you with that if you need help. Okay, he's right back there. He says, uh, he goes on, he says, our people need this faith, freedom, and giving. So they're, listen to this, so they're not oppressed by the size of the church budget. <laughs> it is oppressing sometimes to think, oh, where's all that money going? But the idea here is, no, I'm going to steward personally first and then require the church corporately to steward second. In other words, I'm not withholding from the church because I'm not sure they're going to spend it right. I'm giving freely to the church and then requiring as a community that we use the funds in a way that honors and pleases Christ. Why did Sam Harvard have to die this week? January 19th, Sam Harvard froze to death. In Hyde Park. And I've been thinking about that because I knew Sam Harvard. He'd been to our house more than a dozen times for dinner. We'd given him gloves. Our church community started a little um, resale store. Never could become profitable. And then you ask, was it worth it for me? Sam Harvard used to come into that resale store and get free gloves and a coat. And he showed me his his hands over the years, misshapen by frostbite. And I remember one time that Sam went into that little resale store in the middle of winter and he'd soiled himself and he was wearing a, 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 I can't remember what you call it, but like legs to the top. Come on, somebody help me out or come on up here and preach with me if you can. A coverall, thank you. Sam had soiled himself. So the workers there said, we're going to help you, Sam. Gave him some new clothes, went back into the dressing room undressed washed him up, dressed him up, and sent him on his way. When we read some of the descriptions in the New Testament of no one having need, I think of somebody like Sam, and there's a part of me that says, why did he have to die? Why did he freeze to death? You can read a story in the Hyde Park Herald, Sam Harvard later this week if you want to know more about him. Part of me feels like we failed, our community failed him, not this community, but this vision of a community in neighborhoods, little villages where people are taken care of and loved. There's a part of me that feels like we failed him, but another part of me feels like, you know what? He knew dozens of people who loved him and cared for him and bought him meals and prayed for him. And he attended a church regularly in Hyde Park. 
So part of me feels like, no, we res- the church responded in exactly the same way. But this is what I'm talking about is what do we do with our financial resources and how do we use them for the kingdom of God? So I'm trying to describe something to you, and I'll, I'll state it this way. In a culture that is saturated with worldliness and individualism and comfort and consumerism, God intends for Jesus himself and his church to be at the center of your lives, our lives. As the living organism for change in the world and for us to show this priority through radical God-first generosity. I'm going to read that again. That was a really long sentence. I always say your theme sentence should be like 11 words or less, okay? That was like 49, okay? In a culture that's saturated with worldliness and individualism and comfort and consumerism, God wants Jesus himself first and the church right at the center of our lives as a living organism for change and for us to show this through radical, God-first generosity. That's, that's the claim. That's what I'm trying to describe. Because here, the New Testament church prioritized the New Testament church in radical ways. And our individualism and consumerism and seeking of comfort does not measure up to the model of the New Testament church. And so I'm arguing for a paradigm change. Now, that's what I'm describing, okay? This this heartfelt, radical generosity. But now what I'm going to do is I'm going to defend that description with the scriptures that we looked at, okay? And this is the rest of the sermon is just these texts. The first, I'm going to make... Okay, I'm going to tell you how long it's going to be. Seven. Get ready for seven defenses of this description. Number one is this. That, well, you could call it to move from loneliness to liveliness. But there's this picture in the New Testament. I'm going to try to be uh, concise. God intends for Christ and the church to be at the center of our lives. That's the concise way of saying it. God intends for Christ and the church, radically speaking, to be at the center of our lives. In the midst of consumerism, worldliness, comfort. Tim Chester describes it this way. I think there's a couple more slides. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Most of us order our lives this way. I'm at the center. And I got all these things revolving around me. Go to the next slide. I think you can make a strong argument. This is from Tim Chester in his book, Total Church. He makes the argument that the actual biblical model is that the community's at the center and everything revolves around the community. Now, we're so individualistic as North Americans, it's impossible for us to think in those terms. But many Asian cultures... And African cultures put the community first, not the individual first. And I'm making the argument that what you see in the New Testament is that the church was first, not the individual. 
so that people made decisions about where they're going to live or what they're going to do with their money based on the community first. So that's my first defense of this idea that we need a shift. In, in uh, Acts 2, it talks about glad and generous hearts. This amazing community that we want to see sprinkled through the neighborhoods of Chicago. That's defense number one, is that God intends for Christ himself in the church to be at the center of our lives. I know that's, that there's, there can be abuses with that. They can be scary. Just stating it as a principle from the New Testament. The New Testament church was the center of God's mission and lives. Secondly is the second defense is from Acts 4.32. The defense for this paradigm shift. In the first century, the Christ-centered church meant significant generosity. The Christ-centered church centrality also mentored, meant significant generosity. This is Acts 4.32 says this unbelievable statement. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said they had any of the things that belonged to him as his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. Now I'm not, I'm not mandating that... Actually, I want us to pursue communism today. As a, I'm teasing. But it sounds like communism, right? You don't, everybody give it to the state. That's not what we're saying here. What I, my point is not that nothing that no one has personal property, even though that's what was happening there. The point is, they were radically generous. That's my main point, okay? And God led them to what radical generosity looked like for them. But the principle is, Jesus did everything for you and me. Therefore, how should we respond? That's the second principle, is that this Christ-centered church centrality meant significant generosity. Here's the third defense. This is from Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. It's the concept of first fruits, okay? And uh, the Bible teaches, I'll state it this way, this is the third defense. The Bible teaches that God comes first, not second. That's pretty simple. But also that giving comes first, not second in your life. So here's how it's described in Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, and then it says, and with the first fruits of all your produce. In other words, God gets the first stuff, not because one-tenth of what you have is his, but because you, by giving first, you show that he's in charge, not you. So the biblical concept is not that you own the stuff that you have, but that you are a steward of the stuff that you have. And the way that you show your stewardship, the way that you show that he's the master, is by, according to Proverbs, is by giving first to him. So it says, honor the Lord, this is Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So one of the problems for you as a modern urbanite is you don't have a barn or a vat, so they can't be filled with plenty or bursting with wine. But the Bible says here that your vat should be bursting with wine. Okay? So third, third uh, defense is just that we're to, to give first back to God. I saw this once when I was in Kenya. I've been there a bunch of different times, but it was in the upcountry. And they had an offering time. It was amazing. They brought yams and corn and wheat 
and just put it at the front of the church. I'm like, I've never seen that actual example. God doesn't get your leftovers. Gets your first fruits. Here's the uh, next defense. So defense one is the New Testament church was at the center of God's mission and lives. In the first century, too, secondly, the church centrality meant significant generosity. Number three, the Bible teaches that God's generosity, God comes first, not second. Third is a concept that is called tithing. And here's the concept here. In order to reinforce the idea that giving was to God first, God made it really simple. Give one-tenth immediately to the Lord. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not mandating to you that you need to to move towards tithing because you're under the freedom of Christ. But it's a simple principle where you say, on this paycheck, before taxes, I'm going to give one-tenth back to the Lord. And Leviticus 27.30 says this, Every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. Again, I'm not saying this is a church principle. I'm saying it's a personal principle. For you personally, what is your personal philosophy of generosity back to the Lord? And what some will argue is that tithing is like training wheels for you. It's just the easy way. Sacrificial generosity is the New Testament standard. Tithing is a way to just get it done really easily or understand and free up your heart from the consumerism of the world and just go, okay, I'm just going to start with that. So one, New Testament church was the center of people's lives and mission. Two, in the first century, this Christ-centered church was very generous. Three, the Bible teaches that giving to God comes first, not second. Four is that tithing is, is a simple principle to help you get started on that concept. Don't be legalistic about it. Number five is a bit of a comfort, which is that you cannot outgive God. That God doesn't have a scarcity mentality. The, the, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. That everything belongs to him. This is Proverbs eleven twenty four, which says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. One withholds what he should give and only suffers want. The idea there is, and this is what Jack Miller was saying, is it's okay in prayer to negotiate with God. To say, God, I'm giving 2% right now, and I want to take a step of faith to go to 3% or 4 whatever it is. But I'm nervous. <laughs> I need you to help me with my faith, with my business, with my priorities. And God, it's really about my heart. It's not really about the money. It's about me living 100% for you. So please help me to live 100% for you. You can outgive God. And you can negotiate with God. If I do this, God, then you got to help me over here. I know you, that sounds like heretical to you. But he's your father. <laughs> and you're saying, hey, I don't know how to do this thing. So will you help me do this thing? But if you're my dad, I need your help to do this other thing over here. What he wants is dependence from you. Faith is really dependence upon God. So five is a kind of comfort. Six is um, 
from Malachi again, or not again, but from, from the book of Malachi. And it shows the reciprocal relationship of dependence. So Malachi illustrates this. And it says, Malachi says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And just to be clear, in this context, in the, in the original context, God's saying, you're robbing the priests from what they should have. So for them, practically speaking, if the first fruits weren't coming into the temple, if those yams and the wheat and the corn weren't coming in, then the priests were out scrounging for themselves. And so God's saying, you're robbing me. So I, I'm, I'm wanting to show you the relationship here. He says, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. <laughs> Again, this is a dependency topic, okay? God wants you to see the relationship that is there personally with you. And uh, so here's, I'm, I'm making this defense. The New Testament church was at the center of people's lives. Secondly, the first century church in this kind of centrality had significant radical generosity. The Bible teaches that God comes first, not second. Tithing is kind of training wheels. You can't outgive God. Or giving and generosity is a matter of the heart. And then lastly, just going back to motivation. This should all be about Jesus, who became poor so that you could become rich. I would love to go into this text more, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. I'm going to read part of it, and then I'm going to move towards clothing. closing. We want you to know, brothers, that about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia in a severe text, test of affliction. Listen to the math formula here. Their abundance of joy, that's part one, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. <laughs> in other words, the key to their generosity was not wealth, it was joy. He says that their joy plus poverty equaled generosity. That's the divine math of generosity. For they gave, beyond, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. How do you do that? They gave beyond what they were able to give. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, there was a famine in Macedonia, and they were asking this church to give to another church. And then he says, I ask this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. In other words, direct it back to your hearts. Don't hear the legalism. Don't hear the law. Hear the laying down of his life. It's saying that Jesus became someone, and I don't want to minimize this life, but like Sam Harvard, poor. So that you could be in the position that you're in, rich. And the result was this. 
Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever had little had no lack. So I just have one challenge for you as we close. I want to ask you to take two weeks to pray about whether tithing is something God's calling you to do. That's all. And you may already be tithing. If you are, then whether sacrificial generosity above and beyond that is what he might be calling you to. But on this day, on February 6th, just to pray for a couple weeks about whether tithing is something that you should be doing. Our culture is changing rapidly. Our community is changing rapidly. Our city is changing rapidly. For our commitments to remain the same. Our priorities have to be clear, but we also need a foundation relationally, spiritually, and financially. I have this suspicion that if all of us tithed, we'd be like a $2.1 million annual budget. I could be wrong. But I've been reading all of your tax returns and doing all the math. And when I add it up, that's what it says. Daniel, thanks for all your help in that. I appreciate it. Um, so here's my challenge is I, I want our church to change from, oh, we need to meet the gap at the end of the year. Or even, hey, there's a great thing that we can do in our city to joy-based, devotion-based maturity that says 100% of what I have is yours, oh God. Therefore, I'm going to take the first 10%, give it away in faith, and ask you to increase my joy. John D. Rockefeller, again, this is a different quote, but how much money is enough money, he says, a little bit more. And somebody said to him, Mr. Rockefeller, your fortune is rolling up. It sounds like Jesus to me. <laughs> rolling up like an avalanche. You must keep up with it. You must distribute it faster than it grows. If you do not, it will crush you, your children, and your children's children. I know you're not John D. Rockefeller, but the warnings of Jesus from the scripture are for all of us, that God would help us not to have our fruit choked out of righteousness in our world today. Thanks for listening. It's important what you, you and I do with our money. Would you be willing to pray about this over the next couple of weeks? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you today. And we, uh, I don't really like talking about money in church, but I thank you that um, it's part of being a practicing disciple to recognize that all of our resources are actually yours. Lord, help us to move in our city from this picture, the Nighthawk picture of loneliness and despair, to one of liveliness, glad and generous hearts scattered across our city, feasting and being compassionate to the poor, loving those who have a name and a story and a broken heart. Pray this in Christ's name.